0: Hey everybody, and welcome back to you from Complex to Queens, Mason Avenue's Mono League Podcast. I'm Steve Sleipa, and I will be joined by Lucas Vlahos, Ken Levin, and Thomas Henderson in a little bit. But we're going to jump right into things, and we're going to do our Arizona Fall League update. The AFL is just finishing its third week now, and we'll just start with the most important guy, Brad Beatty. And he went 3-for-21 with a home run two RBI, no walks, nine strikeouts, and an error. So that brings his season total now to 234, 339, 404 in 13 games with 11 total hits, three doubles, one triple, one homer, six RBI, seven walks, and 22 strikeouts. Next up is Carlos Cortez. And this week he went 2-for-11 with an RBI, 2 walks, 2 strikeouts, and an error. And that brings his total for the season to 250, 375, 375 in 10 games with 8 hits, 2 doubles, a triple, four RBI, 6 walks, and 7 strikeouts. Next is Wilmer Reyes. And this week he went 2-for-12 with 4 runs, 2 strikeouts, and an error and that brings his season total to 216 356 324 in 11 games. with two doubles, a triple, four RBI, eight walks and nine strikeouts and four stolen bases in five attempts. And the last of the position players is Hayden Singer and this week he went 8 for uh, excuse me, he went 2 for 8 with a run, a walk and two strikeouts. So that brings his AFL season line to 238, 385, 286 in seven games with five hits, a double, four walks, and four strikeouts. Connor Gray was the lone Mets starter who actually started a game. Uh, he went three innings and he allowed four runs on three hits. He walked two and he struck out three. And that leaves him with a four. Even 4 ERA in 9 innings, having allowed 8 hits, 5 walks, and 8 strikeouts. Garrison Bryant pitched in relief this week. He threw 2 innings, 2 scoreless innings. He walked 1 and struck out 2. So on the season, that leaves him at a 129 ERA in 7 innings, having allowed 3 hits, 3 walks, and struck out 7. Colin Haldeman... He recorded two outs, and he allowed four runs in total. He gave up three hits, he walked one, and he struck out one. And on the season now, he has a pretty unsightly 21.60 ERA in four appearances in 3.1 innings total. He's allowed eight hits, he's walked three, and he struck out four. And last but not least is Brian McTwire, and he pitched one inning this week out of the bullpen, he did not allow any runs, he did not allow any hits, he did not allow any walks, and he struck out one. So on the season, McTroyer has a 12.27 ERA in 3.2 innings over four games. He's allowed five hits, he has walked seven, and he struck out four. So last week I said that the story of the upper levels of the minor league system was expectations. The four of us, we basically all agreed that coming into the season, expectations were high for the Syracuse Mets because for once, the organization went out and they got so much solid depth for the major league team that some of it would bleed into Syracuse because not everybody would be able to be rostered on the Mets at the same time. And that is what happened. But all of that depth was eventually needed. And to paraphrase Thomas, it was a boon for the Mets but bad for Syracuse, because that team got drained of most of the talent that we expected it to have. Binghamton, very different story. Coming into the year, the Rumble Ponies did not look particularly impressive on paper. In terms of actual prospects on our top prospect list, there was basically Mark Vientos, who we ranked 6th last year, and Riley Gilliam, who we ranked twenty-five, And that was pretty much it. Also... Tyler McGill, he was one of our sleeper prospects, and we'll get to him in a little bit, but yeah, offense and pitching, that was not uh, a team that anybody really expected to be winning any championships, and to be fair, they didn't. Rumble Ponies ended the year in fourth place out of six teams in the AA Northeast-Northeast. They went 47-60, and 60, which was 19 games behind the Somerset Patriots for first place in the division. And a whopping 13 games under 500. That aside, though, for probably most of the second half of the year, the Rumble Ponies were the most exciting team in the Met system. Uh, after getting off to a not great start, they heated up in June and July, and of all of the teams, they came closest to being uh, a winning team. Uh, in, in, of all the teams other than St. Lucie. A big COVID breakout in late August and then September basically killed any chance of Binghamton getting to 500 or better, but for a while, they were playing well and it looked like they might actually get there. A major reason why Binghamton surged late in the year was because of the aforementioned Mark Vientos. In 72 games, he hit two eighty one 346, 580 with 22 homers, 26 walks, and 86 strikeouts. Then at the end of the year, he got promoted. He got into 11 games in Syracuse. And for the season as a whole, he hit 281, 352, 581 with 25 homers, 33 walks, and 100 strikeouts in 83 games. I don't want to say Vientos is divisive because that's not really the right word, but. I feel like I'm on an island over here, being his biggest supporter, whereas everyone else has moved on to other prospects. And he doesn't get the attention and he doesn't get the accolades that he should. For the beginning of the year, it looked like I was going to have egg on my face. Not going to lie. Um, Brett Beatty, the other star third baseman in the Mets system, he got off to a good start in Brooklyn. While Vientos got off to a 18-78 and 78 start in May, which, which translates to a 231-279-410 batting line. The thing is, though, we don't have too much data on Vientos, even though he's been in the system for a couple of years now. We only have one year of data on him playing in full-season ball. He got drafted in 2017 and was in short-season ball that year and in 2018. And then, obviously, 2020 never happened. So... We only have two years of full season data on him 2019 and this year. And if you look at the other, you know, 2019, the other year of comparable data that we have, he started out pretty slow that year too, and then he heated up in the second half. In the first half, he hit 240, 286, 364 with five homers. And then in the second half, he hit 270, 315, 464 with seven homers. Sure enough, this year, after a rough beginning, viento seeded up after that rough may he hit 324 407 775 with nine homers in 18 games in june in 21 games in july he hit 282 367 641 with eight homers in august he played in 13 games because of uh, the covid quarantining that he had to do and he hit 286 314 449 with two homers and then in September, in the ten games in September that he played, and he hit two eighty-six, four oh five, six hundred with three homers. We'll talk more uh in depth about Vientos and break down his season more in, you know, future episodes, obviously our top prospect countdown, but him heating up and having a monster season was obviously a, a major reason why Binghamton did as well as they did. Uh, another guy that took some steps forward is a guy that kind of gets treated like an afterthought for a couple of reasons but Jake Mangum I've said this before but given his family background in football his you know um wholesome college all-american athlete image and all that kind of stuff I think a lot of us subconsciously we kind of associate him with Tim Tebow who um you know has negative connotations attached to him for a variety of reasons as a baseball player. But Mangum himself, you know, not having a particularly great 2019 season when he was drafted did not help. Uh, You know, after playing a whole season uh, at MSU, he played basically another whole season. Uh, And obviously, Brooklyn is a pretty poor offensive environment to begin with. And Mangum fell into that big net of of college players that struggled in Brooklyn after being drafted. But this year, he had a solid year. Uh, If you break it down, he started off hot. He swooned in the middle, and then got hot again. But the totality of his season he produced, uh, he had 294, 342, 459 in 75 games with a career-high 7 homers. And 14 out of 20 stolen bases, which is an acceptable 70% success rate. Minor league defensive scouting is even more difficult than major league defensive scouting. But based on college reports, based on what I saw from him in Brooklyn in 2019, based on what I saw from him this season, based on the reports of other people who have seen him in Brooklyn and Binghamton, guy can legit play center field and then depending on how you feel how generous you want to be he ranges from being fine there to being above average there so what was encouraging about his season this year is that if you look at the numbers you can see the changes that he made and why he had a a strong season at msu he was basically kind of slash hitter who when he was able to go fishing for something and really drive it would hit the occasional double, triple homer. But for the most part, he was mainly a bloop guy, a ground ball single kind of guy. This season, he increased his pull rate by about 15%. He dropped his opposite field hit rate by about 15%. So, in effect, he was pulling the ball more and driving it more. That bumped his fly ball rate about 10%, meaning that he was pulling the ball, he was driving the ball, and hitting it in the air for more power. That kind of a a change in approach is repeatable, and... You know, it's not like Mangum's ceiling has really risen all that much in light of those changes, but he's already, he already has the profile of a kind of defensive replacement, pinch runner kind of guy. So adding a little bit more of a competent bat to that mix, that's nice. Uh, it's definitely, you know, major league caliber if he can keep kind of stuff that, that kind of stuff up. Moving on to pitchers, uh, Tyler McGill. He's a guy that was on very few radars and was not really valued uh, all that much coming to the year. He wasn't a complete unknown. We had him on, on our sleeper list. He, uh, I had him on my list of top pitches that I saw in 2018. I saw him in Columbia. But Tyler McGill was not a name that you know anybody got excited about. This year, he spent limited innings in Binghamton before getting bumped up to Syracuse and then to the Mets. And his numbers in Binghamton were—I'm not going to say dominant—but they were pretty good. Uh, 3.12 ERA in 26 innings, with 21 hits allowed, seven walks, and 42 strikeouts. And in terms of him coming out of nowhere to be to 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 have such a good start of the minors, and then get promoted to the majors and succeed there. All that really happened was the guy was given a defined role, I think, anyway. In college, both when he was pitching at Loyola Marymount and then at the University of Arizona, he was a starter some days, he was a reliever other days. When the Mets drafted him, he was used as a starter and reliever in 2018 and in 2019. This season, the Mets finally said, okay, you're going to start. And he was able to get into a groove and he had success. You know, the scouting reports of of him, you know, the scouting report that I had from seeing him in 2019, it matches the Statcast data that we were able to get from him during his time in the major leagues this year. So it's not like all of a sudden he came up with a new pitch that was successful or turned what he already had into, like, amazing pitches. You know, this is just him doing what he's always been able to do. He sat 92 to 96 mile per hour for me when I saw him. And according to Statcast, he ranged from ninety three point two to ninety six, and averaged ninety four point six miles per hour on the fastball. Slider flashed average to plus, and according to Statcast data, he had a slightly positive. slider had a slightly positive impact on run value. Well, excuse me, had slightly negative impact on run value, meaning that was a positive pitch. The changeup, um, at the time when I saw him, was something that he was still developing. And StatCast data at the Major League level showed that it had a slightly positive value on run value and was a slightly negative pitch. Again, that matches the the, the reports that we had on him. So, you know, the guy just kind of was able to start doing what he was supposed to be doing and got into a groove and succeeded. Uh, I feel feel like I'm starting to run a little long on time here. Oops, but a couple of other guys I just want to mention. Adam Aller. Another guy contributed to Binghamton having a strong second half. Um, he was really better in his month in Syracuse than he was during, uh, during his time with the Rumble Ponies. But he had a decent four oh three ERA in 76 innings. And he uh, definitely ended his season in Binghamton really strong. Uh, Jose Budo. Kind of the inverse. He was eh in Brooklyn. But then when he got bumped up to Binghamton, he was solid. He had a three twelve ERA in 40.1 innings. Carlos Cortez. Uh, his numbers were almost identical to his 2019 numbers with St. Lucie, but he was finally able to start hitting for more power in, in Binghamton, in an environment that was uh, more of conducive to hitting for power. Uh, he slugged about 100 points higher. He bumped his WOBA about 10 points up and his WRC Plus by exactly one point from 119 to uh, 120 this year. Uh, Brett Beatty, another guy, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, Him more next week since he spent the majority of his season in Brooklyn, but he was solid in the 40 games that he spent in Binghamton. So yeah, a bunch of players on the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, a bunch of players on the team either lived up to the expectations that we already had for them, or they exceeded them, and that is why you know pretty much uh, the the 2021 Rumble Ponies you know weren't they weren't a great team but it was an exciting team and a pretty fascinating team in terms of seeing player development.
1: So last week when I was discussing Syracuse on my little section here, um, they, really the main takeaway for them wasn't the, the contribution to the Mets minor league system because as we've talked about ad nauseum and anyone who's listening to a Mets minor league podcast, especially in, no, in what's about to be November when, because this was recorded on Halloween, when it was about to be November and the season is all but over for the Mets and we don't even know who's going to be running things. Um, like, their best contribution was that they helped the big Mets do a lot of good things and helped the big Mets keep their first place lead that they ended up did not, that they ended up squandering when everyone came back, ironically. But the whole replacement stuff and the whole, um, all of the guys who really came up and kind of kept them afloat. The Mason Williamses, the Travis Blankenhorns, the uh, Tyler McGills, the guys like that. All of those guys were integral and they wouldn't be there if they weren't signed to play in Syracuse. Well, Syracuse suffered greatly from that because they weren't there to play and be a competitive team it's that was their best contribution really and now this week we're talking about Binghamton Binghamton did not do that and they were also bad Binghamton uh they went 47 and 60 um and the real I would say the real one takeaway from this is Beatty played 40 games there and was solid um didn't hit for a ton of power and made good, t- made solid contact, had a good, like, an okay batting average, had a good OBP, which is nice. Obviously, batting average matters the least out of all of that. But still, the main takeaways for Binghamton, in my view, is that it was the Mark Vientos breakout party session. Um, Vientos went nuts this year. And I think Vientos was someone that I know I can only speak for myself here, but I definitely felt this. I had so much prospect fatigue with Mark Vientos, despite him only being 21. I mean, they drafted Vientos when he was 17 um in 2017. Like that is a long time ago. Um in baseball terms. So he's been around and it just felt like he felt older in my head, like my head he felt like he was someone who was never going to get there. And then this year he hit 281 346 580, 580. Um 22 home runs in 72 games. He was just really really good for Binghamton in a season where they just didn't have a lot going for them. Um one of the other guys who was really good was Carlos Rincón, who they got for Billy McKinney um when they DFA'd McKinney as part of the replacement stuff when they had 800 people coming back and they needed a spot. Um Rincón was really good. Uh, hit 268 319 537 um 10 homers in 38 games um they were they, they were just top heavy like those guys and Jake Mangum had a strong season had an uh, had an 800 OPS uh hit a career high seven home runs played his normal good defense but a lot of their a lot of the team is just kind of guys who aren't going to make it i don't want to say that this team does not have a lot of high upside to it Even Hayden Sanger, who is going to be, at least for me, in my top 15, maybe even closer to 10 than 15, and when we make our list, is a backup catcher type. Like, he's Tomas Nito's replacement when Tomas Nito either starts to become ineffective or he moves on to greener pastures or whatever may happen to Tomas Nito in a few years. Um, uh, That's really it. Like, the guys here, there wasn't a lot of high upside there wasn't a lot of stuff to write home about. And that's why you go 47 and 60. On the pitching side, um the pitching was rough. Like Andrew Mitchell had a good 17-game stretch as a reliever. Um Riley Gilliam was horrible, had a 988 ERA in 20 games, which is a big red sign. I mean that drops him out of everything for me. Eric Orsi is the guy who probably out of the bullpen is the one who popped the most, and he moved up. Um, one dude who actually made five start uh, five starts for the Binghamton Mets was a uh, Tyler McGill starting from Double A. He's the only one who really helped the big club. But yeah, I mean, this Binghamton season, the twenty twenty one Binghamton Mets season belongs to Mark Vientos, and if. There's one takeaway that I'm going to take from Binghamton season is that while they struggled to be competitive and they didn't score a lot and they just kind of were a generally not good team, uh, Mark Vientos was really, really good. And he was really good for them after a very slow, very slow start to the season where it looked like it was just going to be, oh, Mark Vientos, he's regressing or he is what he is and no one is ever really going to. No one is ever really going to... He's not going to take that next step. And he took the... He he did the opposite. And he took a huge next step. And he probably put himself on the mark to... uh, I wouldn't say make the 2022 Mets. But he is in the conversation to start... He's going to start in Syracuse. And then he's going to be one of the guys who gets called up when guys get hurt. And that's important. And you need guys like that. So... If the one takeaway from Binghamton 2021 is that Mark Vientos kind of made his mark in the organization and is going to be someone who we could look forward to either, or they could trade him to help the big club. You never know. You you don't know who's going to come in and run the team. It's just, it's a, it's a, that's, if that's the one silver lining, it's not the worst silver lining in the world, but you would like the team to just be better because that's that means your your prospect pool is better and the match just isn't there yet so the teams are going to struggle with it on the field record wise
2: hey everyone lucas here to record my bit about the binghamton rumble ponies roster in 2021 and oh boy howdy i think i started last week's segment by talking about how just how bad that syracuse roster was this season and binghamton's is somehow even worse uh it's truly depressing to scroll through this roster uh both in terms of the actual quality of the play they were not very good this year they finished 47 and 60 um in the double a northeast northeast division um but the names themselves are uh how to phrase this it's uh, almost as if we're on the island of misfit prospects at this point in that it's a collection of a bunch of former guys that we considered either top 10 caliber or borderline. Um, Basically a whole bunch of them have washed up in this Binghamton uh, or on this Binghamton roster. Uh, Guys like uh, my personal favorite, Will Toffee, who I uh, met Scott in the Juris familiar trade along with uh, a couple other pieces from Oakland that I can't remember right now. That one reliever they traded to the Brewers for, Keon Broxton, whatever. Uh, Will Toffey was someone they got from the, the A's. Seemed like he might be a high walk, uh, corner, bench bat type, and really he's just never been able to hit or hit for enough power uh, to, to fill that role, and his walks have correspondingly declined. His guys have realized they can just challenge him as he's moving up the ladder. Uh, Louis Carpio, another name that fits in here, and he was, he was he, he's still... Uh, at least a marginal prospect, I suppose. Maybe as a utility infielder future, but truthfully, he's never been the same since he had shoulder surgery a couple of years back. So, someone we thought who could be a Ruben Tejada type is now twenty-three year old, twenty-three years old, and posting a 79, 709 OPS in Double A. Like, that's just not particularly appealing. Um, there are a couple other names in here: Matt Winnaker, uh, someone I liked at one point, but quickly came off of once we saw him in pro ball. Um, Anthony Duplantis is here, uh, Nick Mayer, uh, really we could just keep digging for a long, long time into a lot of these names, and there's some on the pitching side, is, oh, I, I even missed one, uh, Desmond Lindsay, who at this point is, uh, uh, I believe, no longer with the organization, so just a lot of uh, flame-outs across the board, uh, really, um, that have kind of stalled out at this level, and that's what I expect uh, we'll probably see next year, because... The system still isn't particularly good. Um, on the pitching side, we could talk about how disappointing Riley Gilliam and Tony DeBrell were. Um, now, on a positive note, we could talk about Jose Buto, Adam Muller, and Eric Orsi, and I think the we'll, we'll talk about a lot of those or all three of them as we go into list season. But I did want to take the chance to talk about um, Brett Beatty's performance, right? So they're really, I, I, I would say. Three and maybe if you squint four positive performances on this roster this year. Um, Mark Vientos obviously posted a 930 OPS, uh, really reestablished himself as a semi-legit prospect, though I question whether he's more than like a J.D. Davis type. Uh, Carlos Cotez had a really nice season, though finished slow, and I still don't think he's really much of anything. Jake Magum posted an OPS over 800 and might be a legitimate bench outfielder, right? So those are two, if you squint three positives. Um, but I, I wanted to get to Beatty here who obviously killed the ball in single A and then high A and, and made it up to, to double A all in a, uh, basically this, this season as a, a three level leap, given that he didn't play in 2020 and on the surface level, he did just fine. He hit 272, 364, 424. That's a 118 weighted, uh, in Binghamton, not nearly as impressive as he was in Brooklyn to be sure. Um, but overall, for, for, again, a guy that missed a season and who was 21 going on 22 in his first taste of A, that's a 40-game sample, it's pretty damn good. Um, but, and, and, and before I get to the but, uh, I'm going to be pushing him as the number two prospect in the system, and I don't think that's particularly a controversial take, and he's probably going to be a universal top 20 to 30 guy. But I have a big concern still, despite the, uh, my opinion on that ranking there's a bit of a red flag that I've mentioned in passing, but I wanted to jump into a little bit more here. So uh, early on in his career as an amateur, and then uh, once the Mets drafted him, Beatty's reputation was more for using the opposite field, uh, not necessarily selling out for power, spraying the ball around, making good hard contact. And that's much what he's continued to do to some to, not some success. He's been quite successful uh, this past season. But that's not really what you want from a power hitter in modern baseball. Um, you don't want a guy that's spraying ground balls or low line drives around. You want generally someone that's pulling the ball in the air for power. Uh, and Beatty, Neither pulled a lot, prior to this season, neither pulled a lot, nor hit a ton of fly balls. Um, So starting in Brooklyn this season, he had a ground ball to fly ball ratio of 2.64. So 51% ground balls, 30% line drives. It's a really nice line drive rate. But only 20% 20 of his batted balls were fly balls. And he was only pulling the ball 40% of the time. So it's a plurality, but not the majority. Um... Oppo 31% of the time, 32% of the time, center field or up the middle 28% of the time. So, ideally, you would like him to both cut down on the ground balls and pull the ball more. So, in AA, uh, Beatty's pull center Oppo rates did go in that direction uh, 48%, 47% pulled. Mostly coming out of the balls he hit up the middle, that went all the way down to 21, and then a pretty similar 32, or almost exactly the same 32% oppo rate. That seems good, until you look at the rest of the batted ball data, where he had a 61% ground ball rate, uh, with most of that coming out of his line drives. right? So his line drives went from almost 30 in Brooklyn to below 15 in Binghamton, Uh, His fly balls only increased a smidge to 24%. Um, So what do we make of this, right? Uh, It seemed like he was maybe trying to pull the ball more, but his bat path, for better or worse, still seems geared for low uh, uh, contact, whether that's line drives or ground balls. Um, And this is now a problem. Uh, It's one thing... Let's put it this way. It's suboptimal if you're trying to be a power hitter. If you're hitting low launch angle, you're spraying low launch angle batted balls. But if you're spraying them kind of everywhere, that's not the end of the world, right? You can survive as a high average guy because you're uh, uh, really stressing the defense out. You're not going to let them shift you, right? Um, So that's great. And it'd be nice if you could hit the ball in the air more and pull it in the air more. But what Beatty managed to do is pull the ball on the ground more. And that's even worse than what he was doing in Brooklyn. right? Like a pulled ground ball, particularly for a left-handed batter, is the easiest play in modern baseball, right? With the advent of shifting uh, and defensive positioning, etc. So my interpretation of this is that Beatty perhaps was trying to make a change uh, but that change hasn't really taken yet, and I'm con- at least a little bit concerned about what this portends for his future. Um, now, in recent baseball, we've seen plenty of guys figure it out and turn into stomp and lift dudes and start hitting the ball out of the ballpark. We've also seen some guys not make that adjustment, and and the Mets, by and large, have not done a good job of helping their hitters adjust as they move through the upper minors and into the majors, right? Aside from, let's say, Pete Alonso, who was a total swing revamp the second he got into the organization, the Mets haven't really had much success with hitting prospects. Uh, And and all you have to do is look to recent examples like Ahmed Rosario or uh, uh, even Dom Smith for guys who seemingly once they got to the major league level, Were kind of just left to sink or swim, right? Like they had an approach and it never, it never really improved for Ahmed. And in Dom's case, it hasn't particularly changed much either, aside from a very brief sample in 2020. Um, So look, I'm not, I'm not saying that Beatty's a bad prospect. I certainly think he's a top 20 to 30 guy in baseball. He's going to be the second best prospect in this system. And, And there's a very good chance he still has a real major league future. However, this is a trend that is, to the analytically inclined prospect enthusiast, a concerning one. Um, And, you know, it'd be great if I could have sat here and dropped a bit of positivity uh, about a Binghamton roster that was, uh, to put it politely, very bad this year, but... Uh, one of the few bright spots has some major blemishes below the surface and it'll be really interesting to see if uh, this is something Beatty and the organization can correct so that he becomes a the, the high-end hitter that he has the chance to be uh, rather than someone else where in 10 or 15 years we're scratching our head and wondering about why, why we couldn't figure this out. Um, So that's my big takeaways from the Binghamton roster. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about some of the interesting pitchers that I mentioned earlier, Aller and Orzee in particular. Um, But yeah, that about wraps it up. Uh, Next week we'll be going down another level to an actually uh, somewhat interesting roster. Um, But until then, love the Mets, love the Mets.
3: Hello, everyone. This is uh, Ken Lavin, and uh, today I'm going to be discussing some of my takeaways from the 2021 Binghamton Rumble Pony season. Uh, so very similarly to uh, what we discussed about Syracuse last week, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies were not very good from a wins and losses point of view. They went 47-60, and 60, which was good for fourth place in the uh, horribly named AA Northeast Northeast Division, and um, really were kind of out of it from the start. That being said, they had a number of very positive player development successes or, um, you know, steps forward taken by guys who spent a a good amount of time there. Uh, The first one who comes to mind uh, of of guys who spent most of the season in Binghamton and kind of had a a bit of a a breakout or, um, you know, renaissance of sorts was uh, Mark Vientos, who we also talked about last week, but... um, it's kind of hard to tell the, the story of the 2021 Binghamton Rumble Ponies without talking about arguably their best hitter. Um, so Vientos had a really terrible start to the season. He um, took him about a month to get going, but a, you know, a couple of torrid months through the, the summer ended up seeing him hit 281, 346, 580 in his time in Binghamton. Uh, a little over 300 plate appearances, and hitting 22 homers before being promoted uh, to AAA. Uh, Vientos managed to improve his walk rate by 4% uh, from his time in 2019 in the Sally League. And uh, while he did strike out a lot, uh, close to 30% of the time, he managed to carry almost a 300 ISO, which is, you know, pretty incredible for a guy as, as young as he is in AA. Um, yeah, he's was, he was the team's best hitter. And um, while I, I still have questions about his ultimate defensive home, uh, I feel a little bit better about him being a building block for uh, the Major League team a few years down the road. I think he's kind of cemented himself as certainly a guy who will be in the conversation as a a role player, but possibly even as a regular. Um, Another guy who, you know, kind of stood out and built on, you know, improved throughout the course of the year in Binghamton was uh, Jake Mangum. Jake Mangum uh, went from a slap hitter who hit 247 337 297 with Brooklyn in 2019 and really kind of blossomed a little bit. He ended up hitting 294 342 459 um, which was a about 17% above league average in 330 plate appearances after being promoted to double A. Um, to say that the power production was a surprise is an understatement. Um, you know, he's a guy who we really didn't think was going to hit for much power at all, and during over the course of his time in, in Binghamton, he really. You know, it's it's not like he's ever going to be. You know. A, really big time power threat but he managed to get more than a usable amount of power into his game which is impressive given the other things that he does well like hit for a lot of contact run um, play very good outfield defense Uh, the development of power in his game this year uh, like again a usable amount of power really helps uh, his profile moving forward. It's a lot easier to see a guy who can slug over 400 uh, have a big league role at some point in the future than it is a guy who, you know, is really just hitting singles in the minors. Uh, So Jake Mangum really kind of put himself um, in a much better position moving forward to, you know, potentially play his way onto a a big league roster. Um, Another guy who... Maybe not quite broke out, but um put together like a pretty solid year for Binghamton is Carlos Cortez. Uh, so by now, I think we all know uh, what Carlos Cortez's deal is he doesn't really have a defensive home. He's more of a, a power over hit type guy uh, who doesn't really have all that much power. But we're now three years into his career into his minor league career, and he's been about twenty percent above league average everywhere he's gone. Um, which is, you know, doesn't mean everything, but is certainly better than you know not performing. And given you know that the Mets have drafted him tw- drafted him twice and offered him a significantly above slot bonus. and given that you know the team doesn't have a ton of depth in the especially in the outfield where you know Cortez can play um, on either corner. Uh, preferably left, but can probably stand in right if needed. Um, I think there's a pretty good chance he's going to get big league service time um, at some point. Now, I, I don't know if it'll be a lot of time. I mean, this is a guy who has never hit much above 250 in the minors, but uh, I would be very surprised if he didn't at least get a cup of coffee. Uh, to speak you know, a little bit more about his time... With the Rumble Ponies this year, uh, Cortez kinda just kept doing his thing. He um, hit two fifty-seven, three thirty-two, four eighty-seven. Uh, almost exactly twenty percent above league average, and um, yeah, almost a mirror image from his batting line the year before. Except he managed to add, you know, forty points of, of iso, isolated slugging. So, or no, almost a hundred points of isolated slugging. So, uh, one thing to to note about Cortez, though, is his strikeout rate did uh, jump by about 10% from where it was in 2019 in the Florida State League. Um, So, there's a little more swing and miss to his game than he had ever shown previously, but with that came a little more power. And, um, yeah, again, similar to Mangum, it's a little easier to squint and see a big leaguer in there, um, given some of the improvements or that he's continued to perform at higher levels. Uh, Again, he's got a lot of question marks. Um, Where is he going to play defensively? You know, that's a big one. Um, Will the swing and miss continue to get worse as he faces better and better competition? Uh, Will he be able to hit 250 in the big leagues with enough power for the profile to play as as a bench piece? Uh, These are all things that remain to be seen, but he did have a good year, and uh, I would be very surprised if he doesn't get at least a few at bats uh, in the big leagues before all is said and done. Uh, on the pitching side, um, again, no stranger to um, our podcast, you know, frequent podcast concern at this point. But uh, Eric Orsi really kind of put himself on the map with Binghamton this year. He threw 17.1 innings and managed to post a 2.6 ERA with an almost identical 2.65 FIP and struck out almost 13 batters per nine while walking less than one. That's pretty incredible. Uh, he did give up you know, quite a few homers, uh, over one per nine, but... He also managed a, a ground ball rate well above 50%, 52.6%, and the strikeout-to-walk ratio is legitimately elite. Um, Eric Orzi kind of put himself in a position where I, I think next year he's most definitely going to be in the, the big league reliever churn and has a chance to be a pretty good big league reliever. So um, he's definitely a guy who put himself on the map this year with Binghamton and... Um, you know, should play a bigger role uh, next year and moving forward. Um, beyond that, I uh, was very impressed with how Brett Batty adjusted. Uh, we'll talk about him more next week when we, we do our Brooklyn review, but Batty continued to hit, didn't really skip a beat after being promoted from uh, Brooklyn in the middle of the season. In 176 plate appearances, he hit 272, 364, 424, uh, 18% above league average and managed to keep his strikeout rate right around 25% while walking uh 12.5% of the time. So really continued despite being at a higher level of competition, uh, to perform and, uh, It'll be interesting to see um, where the Mets decide to place him to start next season. I'd I'd imagine he's probably slated to go back to Binghamton for a little bit, but you could make the argument, given his um, age and everything, that he should start in AAA, but that remains to be seen. Um, Yeah, so so Binghamton had a few real development successes and um, a few strong seasons from guys, despite their record, and um, hopefully... The the prospects who performed there will continue to build on that success moving forward in AAA and beyond.
0: All right, everybody, that is the show. And as always, if anyone has any questions, comments, or whatever, you can send us an email at our email address from Complex to Queens at gmail dot com. You could follow us on Twitter and shoot us questions there. I am at Steve Cypher. Lucas is at El lajos three four three. Ken is at KenLavin91, and Thomas is at S Z N. Subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from, rate and review it. And of course, we thank you for listening. So until next week, love the Mets, love the Mets.